0: Heavenly Father, we come into your presence once again. We thank you for this privilege. We ask now that you open up your word to us as we continue this service. Father, may we leave here different than we were when we came in, that we would be closer to you and more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you all to be seated. I want to give you a word. and Take a piece of paper and jot down what you think of whenever I say this word. And when you get into your groups tonight, those of you that are part of a group, this is part of your discussion. What comes to mind when you hear this word? And the first thing, it may be an image, it may be a, a person, it may be something along those lines, whatever comes into your mind when you hear this word, I want you to write it down and think about it as we go through this message especially. The word is holy, H-O-L-Y. What comes to mind? Write down the image or whatever you think that means. Uh, If you had to define it, describe it, maybe a person or an experience in your life, what do you think of with the word holy, H-O-L-Y? Now, if I had to guess, I would probably guess that some of you are writing down something or thinking something that has to do with somebody that is perfect and without sin, somebody that is righteous. Maybe you're thinking about a monk in a monastery on top of a mountain somewhere and he can't be touched by temptation and he doesn't have any uh, issues in his life and he doesn't sin and you think of that person being holy. Maybe you think of your pastor. An amen, at least? <laughs> Gee, you could hear a pin drop on that one. Now, the kids probably think I am. They think I'm the headmaster. They think I own the church. They think all these things about me. But that's all right, I understand. But in reality, is this the, the word holy, if, if you look into a Webster's Dictionary, you're going to find the definition something like what I just described. That's how they would describe or define holy. But the biblical term, as it is used in the Bible, simply means this. It means to set apart. It means to take and set apart something or dedicate something to a particular purpose, and it is called holy. Let me give you some examples. In the Bible, you're going to find a term called the holy temple where God is referring to the temple. He's not talking about the temple being sinless. He's talking about it being set apart for a particular purpose, for his use. Holy city is the same way. Talking about Jerusalem, the holy city is set apart for a particular purpose. It has nothing to do with sin or or righteousness. Holy prophets, the same way. Prophets, if you look in the Old Testament, a lot of them were really scoundrels but they were prophets nonetheless. They were set apart for a particular job. Holy ground. Remember when Moses went to the burning bush and the voice from the bush said, take off your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Now what does that mean? Does it mean the ground is something sinless or has something to do with sin? No, it simply means the ground you're on is set apart or different than the other ground around you because God is here. He's right here, so that makes it special. That makes it holy. Holy blessing. Talking about a blessing from God is set apart, special, different. Holy Scripture. Talking about the Bible being something that is set apart or different or special from other books. God wrote this book. It is very unique. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. A holy kiss. Oh, what is that one talking about? When the Bible says to us to greet each other as Christians with a holy kiss. Now, is that a special kind of kiss? Hmm. No. It simply means this, that it is something that you use in your greeting with Christians, at least they did in the early church, where you're kissing each other on the cheek and it is a holy kiss in the sense that it sets you apart and distinguishes you, recognizes you as a believer. They were recognizing each other. The Bible talks about holding up holy hands. What is special about those hands? Well, he's talking about hands that are righteous, a person that is living for the Lord. Uh, He's not telling you that everybody has to hold their hands up, but he's just saying when you do, let it be holy hands, righteous hands that you hold up. There are some synonyms or words that are used in place of holy that mean the same thing. For example, consecrate. That's another word that talks about setting something apart for special purpose or use, and it could be used as holy as well. Dedicate, same thing sanctify, that word especially is used in place of holy a lot of times in the Bible, but it means to set something apart for a special use. Now, you may be asking, well, what's all this got to do with anything? We're supposed to be in the book of Judges. What are we talking about? Well, last week we started looking at Samson, and we were looking how that God had set him apart. Remember? set him apart for a particular purpose. He was set apart to do something for God, to deliver the nation of Israel, to be their defender. Um, I want to go back for just a moment, look at one of the verses that we looked at last week and show you where this concept is coming from and where I'm going with it today. Then we're going to look at a couple of other verses along the way. In Judges chapter 13, verse 5, we looked at this last week. Here's what it says. You will become pregnant. Now, this is Samson's mother that he's talking to. God is talking to Samson's mother. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Dedicated to the Lord. Now, there's that synonym for holy. Dedicated to the Lord from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So there it is. Here, Samson is to be different. He's to be set apart. He's to be dedicated. In the book of Numbers, and I told you this last week, Samson is, is called to be a Nazarite or take the Nazarite vow. He didn't have a choice. God basically did it for him. He said, this is who you're going to be. But in order to understand what a Nazarite vow entails, you have to go back into the book of Numbers. Now, let me just show you two verses that kind of zero in on what I'm talking about here. In Numbers chapter 6 verse 5, it says this. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be, there's that word, they must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. So there's the, both of the words together. This is what a Nazarite was supposed to be. This is what Samson was supposed to be. There's one more verse in, in Numbers that I want to show you. It's down in verse 8. Same chapter, verse, chapter 6-8. says, Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. There's that word, that other synonym that I was telling you about. All of these words are basically saying that the man is to be set apart, he is to be dedicated, consecrated, holy. He's to do what it is that God has called him to do. Now how do you know when you read this what exactly that is talking about? Set apart for what? Set apart to do what? Set apart to be what? Well the context is going to determine that for you. In other words, whatever the context is talking about, this is what the word holy is talking about being set apart too. Watch. Samson was holy. He was set apart. Samson was not righteous. Do you understand? He said that he's holy, or the Bible says that he is holy or set apart, but Samson was a scoundrel. See, Samson had a problem with women. And uh, you're going to see this in the next few weeks as we go through the remainder of this story about Samson. But yet he was still holy or set apart. Now last week we talked about this, first part of this. He was set apart to do the ministry that God called him to do. He was there to be the champion of the nation. He was there to defend them and protect them from the Philistines. God called him apart from birth and said, this is what you're going to do. And that's what he did. And he endowed him with special strength to do it. But there was another part to this. God also called Samson to live a certain lifestyle. And this idea of being holy or set apart involves that too. Now, he did his job as far as defending the nation. But he failed on the second part. Now, he wasn't righteous. All the time, but he was nonetheless holy, called apart or set apart. Now watch, because this is where we're going with this, okay? The same thing is true of you. The same thing is true of you. Each one of us who has professed faith in Jesus Christ is set apart. We are, in the eyes of God, holy. We're consecrated. We're to be different. We are set apart for two things, just like Samson. We are set apart to do the ministry that God's called us to. And last week we talked about how that each one of us has a different ministry, a different area of service, a different way in which God can use him or her. But now we're going to talk about the second part of that. Because we are also called to be holy or set apart from the way the world lives. And we are told that we are to be holy and righteous and obedient. That as believers, we're set apart to that. We're called to that. Now today, what we're going to be doing is looking at that portion of it. Just the living of a righteous life. And some things that maybe you've never understood or heard before. But we're also going to talk about at the end of this message, why in the world it is so hard. For us as God's people to always be living a righteous life. Why do we fail? Why do we give in to temptation? What's going on in our minds? And tonight in your groups, I've included this question that you are to talk about this. Some ideas that you have as believers. Why do you struggle? What's causing you problems? Why are you not able to gain victory in your Christian life? And so why do you sometimes give in to things that you shouldn't? I want to look, as, as we begin with this, by looking at this verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what it says. It's a short verse, but a very powerful verse. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now right there, the context tells you what that means. Because he is contrasting this holy, set-apart life with being impure. So he's talking about righteousness in your life, the way you live it, your obedience to God. He's saying God didn't call you as a believer now to just live like you want to. God didn't give you permission to be impure or immoral or unrighteous. God didn't say that was okay. Instead, God called, called you to be holy or set-apart. From the way the world lives. Now listen to me very carefully. Okay. Let me read you this. You were not saved. Because of your ability. To live a sinless life. You were not saved. Because of that. Because nobody can. You were saved. Because of your inability. To live. A sinless life. Do you understand that? God looked down at you and me and He said, I love you and I'm going to save you and I'm going to forgive you of everything you've ever done. Everything you're ever going to do. I'm going to wipe it all clean. You are justified, clean in my sight. And sometimes we get the idea that, okay, if that's true and God says now that I'm a a Christian and I'm to live a holy life, He must be talking about not ever sinning, being perfect. And that's not what he's talking about at all. Because God understands that nobody as a human being is perfect or without sin or we'd be like God. This is the reason God has made provision in the Bible for believers to confess their sins, to deal with those issues. But nonetheless, we are called by God now as believers, To be holy, like it says here. He didn't call you to be impure, he called you to be holy. So what exactly is he talking about? Well, what you're going to find as you look through the scriptures is that what God is calling you to do is to become always moving forward. Maturity, growth, righteousness, change, transformation. See, these are the things that, takes, that take place in life over a period of time. That From the time you put your faith in Christ and the Spirit of God enters into you, you now have the power and the capacity to start living for God. And this is what God has set us apart to do, called us to do. We see this and we think to ourselves, oh, he's, I'm supposed to be holy and I can look at myself and see that I'm not I can look at myself and see that I fail. I can look at myself and see that I'm not perfect. But yet I look at other Christians and they seem to at least imply to me by the things they say and do that maybe they are. And man, as Christians, we're all confused. We're all confused because we don't understand that what God is saying is this. I want you to be separate from the world. I want you to not act like them anymore. I want you to let some of the things that you've gone, that that you've done all of your life, let those things go, and be separated to me, and start living for me. And I I don't expect you to be perfect until you get to heaven. That's not what I'm asking of you. But what I am asking of you is that you are continually setting yourself apart from that. See, holy, setting apart, and that you're growing and maturing and changing. And the the trajectory of your Christian life is always moving up, forward, ahead. You're becoming more and more like me each and every day. That's what I'm asking of you. I'm asking for you to set yourself apart to do that. I never asked you to be perfect because you can't. That's the reason I saved you. Because you couldn't do it yourself. So this is what God is asking let me show you a couple of other verses before we get into answering that question about why we do the things we do and we struggle with this. But look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. These are three great verses I'm going to share with you right quick. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 9. It says this, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So just so we understand now, look at the verse. What we're talking about took place before time ever began. That in the mind and the heart of God, here's what he did. He made the decision to save you. He has saved us and Called us to live a holy life, not because we deserved it or anything we could possibly do, but because he chose to love you. And he not only called you or set you apart through salvation, but he set you apart to live a holy and different life. They go hand in hand. You're not saved because you're a good person, you're saved because of your faith. But God says, Now I want you to strive to become better and better in the way you live your life. Look at this verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Now watch. You're going to have to discuss these verses tonight, okay? So this is part of your discussion for tonight. 10, 14 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Okay, now the question you're going to have to answer is this. He says here, for by one sacrifice you have been made perfect, past tense. He has made perfect in the past those who are being made holy, present. What does that mean? I mean, Christians are scratch their head thinking to themselves, what? Basically, here's what it means. You have been saved by your faith in Jesus Christ and you have been made perfect. Do you understand that? That when God looks at you, God doesn't see the sin anymore. God sees the righteousness of His Son. That's your position in Christ. That's who you are. In Christ. Now notice it always qualifies it. In Christ. Nowhere else. Only in Christ. By your faith in Jesus Christ, you are clean. Forgiven. Forgiven. And in the eyes of God, you're perfect. And he says, these are the people that I saved. The sinners that couldn't save themselves but put their faith in me, I saved them, those people that are in the process of becoming not perfect but holy. In the process of now becoming holy. Your holiness as a Christian is a process that you go through each and every day where you make the decision to set yourself apart and not act like that. It's the decision you make. You couldn't do it without the Lord. You couldn't do it before you were saved. You can do it now. You can do it. We're not talking about perfection. We're just talking about holiness. We're talking about being set apart from things that you see in your life that need to change and God giving you the power to do so. In each and every day, you progress and become better and become a different person. You are the one that is being made holy, the one who was declared perfect already in the eyes of God. Watch this verse, one more. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. Ooh, this is a good verse. He says, You are the one who have the promises. God promised you that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are His never to be cast out of His family and that someday, you will be in a place the Bible describes as only, only being a place that cannot be described by human words. You'll be there. God says, I made you that promise. Now, Paul is saying this, seeing how you have these promises, then purify yourselves on, your day, on a day-by-day basis, the way that you live. Purify yourselves in everything that you are allowing to contaminate your life. Purify yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Become holy people. And why? He says, out of reverence for God. You and I ought to be about every day perfecting holiness, getting better at it, learning how to live it, becoming familiar with it and accustomed to it, and and realizing what God wants. That's what it means by perfecting it. You're just making it better. You're getting the hang of this. And I do it not because... Not because I'm trying to get God to save me. He's already done that. Not because I'm trying to do something or manipulate God. I I do it for one reason. Because I understand what He's done for me. And out of reverence for Him. I'll do this. You see, your love for Jesus Christ is what should motivate you to live for Him. Because you realize what he's done for you. And I've told you this before. The people, the the Christians I'm talking about now, who can't quite put it all together, who don't understand what it means to be in Christ, they don't understand their position, don't understand what God has done in their lives, they don't fully appreciate it. They're the ones that struggle the most. They are. And what God wants is for you to understand that because that motivates you to love him. And That's how we perfect our holiness, by understanding what he's done, who he is, and out of gratitude and love for him, we we make the decision each and every day to set ourselves apart from the way the lost world lives. Now, guys, let me tell you, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, the Bible says. He has given you everything you need to be successful. But God doesn't force you to. God doesn't pick you up and move you. You have to decide every day to put off the old man and put on the new. Put off the old behavior, put on the new. That's a decision that you have to make. And that's what he means by perfecting holiness. You're getting the hang of what it means to be set apart. And you are getting better and better at it as time goes on. Now, here's the question. And here's where you're going to really camp tonight when you get into your groups, okay? Why is it so hard to live that life? Why is it so hard to live a righteous life? Why is it so hard to be be living as a Christian and setting myself apart and living a holy life and honoring God with my life? Why is that so hard? Tonight, when you get into your groups, here's what I want you to do. I want you to open up, okay? Tell why, for you personally, you struggle. Now, maybe you don't struggle, and if that's the case, then tell why that is. What have you come to, to do or understand or what helps you. But if you're struggling, then talk about why and and try to help each other figure out and to, and to see that, you know what, we're in this together and nobody has it all together. We're, we're, in a, we're a work in progress here. But some of the things that you struggle with, maybe you've discovered some help, some things that would help me. And so we need to be talking about this. What I'm going to do this morning is share with you three thoughts that I had on the answer to this question. And that's all they are. They're my thoughts, okay? But the, an- the question is this, why is it so hard to live a righteous life? And I, wa- I want to give you three answers. Here they are. Here's the first one. Because we convince ourselves that we can't do it. We convince ourselves that we can't do it. Um, again, like I said before, this is not perfection. But I've seen so many Christians who have this perception that when God tells me to be holy, then I've got to be perfect. And so I drive myself crazy trying to be a perfect Christian. And usually what happens is this. I've seen it happen so many times. We get all puffed up. We get all prideful. You know, we look at ourselves and think, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing better than they are. And so I begin to compare myself and think of myself a little more highly than I I probably should. And pretty soon, I'm so full of pride that I've just defeated everything that I ever gained. And sometimes that happens. God is interested in growing, maturing, changing. He never said you'd be perfect. Not in this life. But He is interested in you growing. As long as you have... <clears throat> Excuse me, as long as you have this understanding <clears throat> that holiness is something that God never intended for it to be, then you're going to give up. Guys, I've seen this happen so many times in churches. Somebody comes into the church, they come to Christ, <clears throat> they're so excited about their faith, and they're so committed about living for the Lord. And they're good for about three months. I mean, they can run on just their salvation experience alone for about three months. And then all of a sudden, something happens. And that person begins to look at themselves in the mirror, and they realize what's going on in their lives. They realize the failures that they've encountered along the way. And they think to themselves, it didn't work for me. Because you see, I still struggle. I still do. And what hasn't what they haven't come to realize that everybody else sitting out there in the auditorium has too. And so they, can, they are convinced that they can't do it, it didn't work for them, and they give up. And so many believers are right there having given up. And they just quit. And so, yeah, this is one of the reasons why we give in and we just come to the conclusion in our lives that it can't be done. And again, you've misunderstood what God wants. Here's the second reason, and that is that we're afraid of missing out on something. We're afraid of missing out on something. How many of you have a bucket list? You know what a bucket list is? You got a list of something. It may not be written down, but if there's something you've thought about and you think to yourself, I want to do this before I die. I'm going to go tour the world. I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to go build a house on a mountain. I'm going to Something, jump out of an airplane with a parachute. I mean, something that you have in your mind that, you know, before I die, I want to do that. Why? Why? Because, you see, you want to leave this world having done everything that you can to experience life to the fullest. You want to enjoy every bit of it. You want to just squeeze every ounce of living there is out so that you leave this world with a smile on your face, having done the things you wanted to do. And experience life, and now you can die a happy person. Well, sometimes we do that with sin. We'll say to ourselves, you know what? That what they're doing over there looks like a lot of fun. What they're doing over there looks appealing. Guys, let me tell you something. I've told you this before. Sin is fun. Good grief. If it wasn't, we wouldn't struggle with it so much. And we're deceiving ourselves if we think differently. So somebody goes to a party as a teenager, and they're looking. They, they've never done this before, but gosh, those people over there smoking that stuff, they seem like they're having a good time. I, I, I want to experience that before I die, just, just a little bit. And you know you shouldn't, but you think so just, just a little bit. Just let me experience it. We go out with our buddies, and they start drinking. We don't drink, so we think to ourselves, well, let me try that. Because you see, I feel like I'm missing out on something. It goes on and on to, in, into areas of morality, into all kinds of things where we think to ourselves, if I don't try this, I will regret this someday because I will feel as though when I grow old, I will say, gee, I wish I'd have done that. Let me just give you a little heads up here, okay? I've never sat with anybody at their deathbed who wishes they'd sinned more. Nobody. They've never missed out on a thing. You know, I, I, I equate this to kind of walking along the edge of a cliff. We walk, we walk along the edge of the cliff and we look down on the gorge and it is so deep and so dangerous. And we think to ourselves, gosh, this, the adrenaline is flowing. It is so exciting. It's exhilarating. Oh, this, I'm, I'm feeling life now. Knowing at any minute you could fall over the side and die. And my question is, you fool, why do you take the chance? Why do you take the chance just to feel the adrenaline? Well, sin is that way, guys. It really is. And sometimes we think that we're going to miss out on something if we don't take the opportunity when it presents itself. And if we just do it once, if we just do it a little bit, it won't really matter. But we don't understand the dangers of that. Let me read you this verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Here's what Paul says. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now Look at what he's saying. He's saying people use this excuse. They'll say, you know what? I'm a believer. I'm saved. I'm saved forever. God has forgiven me of everything. Past, present, future. I can live like I want to he said, not everything you do is beneficial. You're going to get into some things that are going to control you and master you and ruin you. Do you not see that? And we take this foolish approach as Christians, that we can dip our toe into the pool of sin, and it'll be okay and it won't affect us, and it will affect you. It always does. Later on, down in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he says the same thing, but just a little bit different. Let Let me show you the difference. In verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Now catch this, but not everything is constructive. Is what I'm thinking of doing going to draw me closer to Christ? Is it going to help me in my Christian walk? Is it going to help me in my, in my process of growing and becoming holy and righteous in this life? Is it going to help me? No. Then why do it? You know, when you compare what God has said lies at the end of this life for us, When you think about what God has laid in store for us, that the eye has never seen, the ear has never heard, has never entered into the mind of man, what God has for us, what in this life could ever compare? You're not missing out on anything. Not anything. But God will take the things that you sacrifice, the things that you don't participate in, the things that you give up, the things that you set yourself apart from. God will take and replace in your life the things that bring you joy and satisfaction like you cannot believe. You never imagined. Here's the third thing, very quickly, the third reason. And that is because we don't stop to think about the consequences. We sometimes struggle with righteousness because we don't stop and think. About the consequences. Consequences are given to us as a deterrent. How many of you have ever heard testimonies of people who were, oh, they were great Christian people, got into an immoral situation and lost their family? The man or either the woman too. They lost their family because they had an affair. Committed adultery. That's consequences. How many times have you heard about somebody going bankrupt because they got into legal trouble and couldn't afford the lawyers and they went bankrupt? That's consequences. How many times have you ever heard of Christians going to prison because they broke the law? That's consequences. Being terribly sick and your health failing because of something foolish you did. Or dying. Those are consequences. And part of the problem with us Struggling with temptation is we never stop and sit down and think, ooh, what if, what if somebody finds out about this? What if I catch a disease? What if I get into legal trouble? What if, you just fill in the blank, is it really worth the chance, the risk? Just to experience something in this life, it will fade away in comparison to what's coming. I think not. So here's where we are with this. The challenge is very simple. Let me just give you the challenge. First of all, that you and I together, that we would make the right decisions on a day-by-day basis. Every hour of every day, you're going to be confronted with the decisions that you have to make. My prayer for yourself, for you, and for myself is that we will set ourselves apart in the way we think and act, and that we'll make godly decisions. That we will make a commitment to put the Lord first. Put him first in everything we do. That we would keep our eyes on what's coming, and not what's right there in front of you. Because what is right there in front of you will always be appealing. It always will be. But it's not worth the risk close with this verse. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Watch. Listen to what he says. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, and he's talking about the world, since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Since everything that you value in this life is going to burn up in smoke, then you need to be separating yourself. And you need to live a devoted, separated, godly life. This is what the Bible teaches. And that is my prayer for all of us. As believers here at Dogwood, that's what we would be. We would live a life like that. If you're here this morning and you've never understood the gospel, let me just close with this verse. It's in John 6, 47. It's very simple. It says this. Very truly, I tell you, The one who believes has eternal life. The one who believes. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and the Bible says when you believe that, put your faith in that, God gives you eternal life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and if you're here this morning, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to believe that he's done that for you, then do it here this morning, right there where you sit. Right there where you sit. Settle this issue. You turn to God and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died for me. And I'm trusting him right now to save me. God says, I will save you. I promise. That is God's word. For all of us as believers, right there where you sit this morning, let's begin to pray together. Pray for each other. God, help us to be holy people. Set apart for, number one, your service, and number two, righteousness. That we would set ourselves apart to live for you. That's all that we're asking of you as believers. That's all that God is asking of you. Those two things. One day Jesus was preaching, and a rich young ruler came up and he said, No, master, tell me what is the greatest commandment of all? He said, well, the greatest is this, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. That's the greatest. That's the righteousness part. He said, here's the second one, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. That's the service part. It's interesting, when God was asked, what is the thing that I ought to be focusing on? Those are the two things. You walk with me in righteousness, and you serve me by ministering to my people. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you this morning, Lord, we are smacked right upside the head with the reality that many times we have failed you. As your children, we have failed you. Father, out of reverence for you, out of love for you, out of devotion, may each and every one of us make a commitment that we will separate ourselves from ungodliness, that we would no longer act like that, we would no longer value those things, but that slowly but surely, day by day, hour by hour, Father, when we're confronted with a temptation, we would say no. Out of reverence and love for you, knowing that this world has nothing to offer us, help us to be that people. In Jesus' name, amen.